You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. A reading from Psalm 12. Help, O Lord, for there is no longer anyone who is godly. The faithful have disappeared from humankind. The other lies to each other with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongues we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is our master? Because the poor are despoiled, because the needy groan, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long The promises of the Lord are promises that are pure, silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will protect us. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among humankind. Come, Holy Spirit. Come with the power of a great wind to clear out the cobwebs of our hearts. Or come stealthily, as close as our own breathing, to whisper your truth into the silence of our lives. However you come, come with the power to change us, that we might truly be the body of Christ in the world. Amen. A couple of years ago, I was part of a research group dedicated to exploring government, vocation, and the common good. We were charged with looking at what was involved in the callings to different levels of political life, the joys and the challenges to be found in these callings, and how Christians in political jobs might contribute to our shared common good. As we were preparing for one meeting in Washington, D.C., I sensed the Spirit prompting me to meditate regularly on this psalm, Psalm 12. This was during the season of Advent, and I almost would say that I claimed it as an Advent psalm of hope in the midst of a season of political conflict that could so easily lead to despair. I've been studying political and cultural conflict for just about 20 years now, after a short stint on Capitol Hill left me with a lot of questions. My academic mentor from the University of Virginia is the one who first applied the term culture wars to the American context in the 1990s. He offered insight into the political conflicts of that time period over things like funding for the arts and education, definitions of the family and abortion, how these conflicts were tapping into deep differences over how we understand the nature of truth and of human being itself. Even though viewing the conflict that marks the American political landscape is not a new endeavor for me, like many, I have been disheartened by what we've witnessed in this particular season of our political life together. Help, O Lord, for there is no longer anyone who is godly. The faithful have disappeared from humankind. They utter lies to each other with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. These opening words of the psalm seem so apt in this particular moment. 
As I anticipated gathering a couple of years ago with a small group of Christians, some Republicans, some Democrat, some of whom had been actively engaged in government as a part of their callings, others who had studied matters related to politics, social theory, and theology, I knew that it would be easy for us to despair. Our charge was to wrestle with what is good about God's calling to engage in government on multiple levels, as well as to honestly articulate what is challenging about this calling in this particular cultural moment. Our group was just one part of a larger project exploring the joys and challenges of different callings. So other groups existed too, focused on areas such as medicine, law, education, the arts, philanthropy, clergy. It was a multi-year project launched before the intensity of this particular political season. But in light of the deep divisions we were seeing in our political life, our group felt keenly the importance and the challenge of the charge before us. And we were aware of how easy it would be to let the opening words of the psalmist be the final word. Help, O Lord, for there is no longer anyone who is godly. The faithful have disappeared from humankind. Thankfully, of course, that's not where this psalm ends. Like the beginning, the end of the psalm does not mince words, but in the midst of the psalmist's honesty about how bad things are, the psalmist clings to the reminder that God is our protector. The promises of the Lord are promises that are pure, silver refined in a furnace on the ground. Purified seven times. You, O Lord, will protect us. You will guard us from this generation forever. In reflecting on this psalm day after day, I was struck by how the psalmist's hope finds its grounding, finds its grounding in the purity and trustworthiness of the promises spoken by the Lord. This is an important clue to one of the big themes of this psalm, how words are used. Notice the content of the indictment against God's people. They utter lies to each other. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is our master? Lies uttered, lips used to flatter, speech offered with a double heart, a tongue that makes great boasts. And then a quotation trying to capture the spirit of the conviction that lies behind this distorted use of words. With our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is our master? Our lips are not our own. Who is our master, really? This bold claim reminds us of the garden. God's vision was for a people who would live in dependent trust on him, receiving life, grace, and dominion from his hands, and gratefully offering every part of ourselves back to God. This dominion word is especially important. We read in Genesis 1, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Dominion is a power word. It's a king word. 
God, who himself had all dominion, all power, all authority, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, chose to share his dominion with humans. Along with the gift of life itself, he gave us the gift of power. With the expectation that we would use this gift to steward the world, to steward the world he had entrusted to us in keeping with his vision for it. Shalom is the word that biblical scholars use to refer to God's creation vision, a world in which God, humans, and all of creation were meant to dwell together in harmony, justice, and delight. A world in which humans used the power God had given them to seek what was best for themselves, for each other, for every aspect of God's creation to the glory of God. It's worth pausing to remember that God did not have to share his power. Most kings don't. Think of King Herod, who was king when Jesus was born. When he heard from the wise men that a baby was born, who was the king of the Jews, he didn't think, oh, how lovely. I would be glad to share my power with this baby. Instead, he ordered all the children, two years and under, to be killed so that he didn't have to share his power with them. Our God is not like that. He generously shared his power with us. And this is a gift. Because we've seen so much evil done with power, we can be tempted to think of power as a bad thing rather than as a gift from God. Augustine reminds us that God created everything good, but we in our sinfulness take these good gifts and twist them towards evil and selfish ends. That's what happened with Herod. Indeed, Augustine says that's what happened with the devil, that the devil's problem was he chose the power game over the justice game, whereas Jesus Christ used his power to seek justice. So power in and of itself is not bad. We are each called to use whatever power we've been given for good in this world. We are called to use our God-given power, including our speech, to seek flourishing life, shalom life for each other and for every aspect of the world. We are to see our bodies and our lips not as our own, to seek our own will and ways, but as entrusted by us, to us, by God. So we might seek God's vision of justice, righteousness, and shalom. Humans were created for this posture of receiving and offering back. Receiving and offering back. But in the fall, in that moment with the fruit, we see the first human instance of taking rather than receiving. And thus ushers in a long season of taking, hoarding for ourselves, and our kind, viewing the things God has given us, the very power of speech intended for beauty, goodness, and life as our own to wield as weapons. Acting as if our lips are not our own is a perennial temptation. But as the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The epistle of James anticipates the ongoing challenge of using our tongues for good. In James we read, those who consider themselves religious 
and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. And this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And perhaps most famously, this from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Our lips are powerful. How are we using that power? In the time of the psalmist, as perhaps in our own time, the use of lips was motivated by the lust for domination rather than love of God, to use Augustine's language. The result, according to this psalmist, is that some people ended up with no voice at all. The psalmist tells us that in contrast to the flattering lips and great boasts that dominated the landscape, the needy groan, groan, not even audible words. That's all the space that existed for their words within the larger landscape of boasting, lying, and double talk. But God hears these groans, and in response, the Lord speaks. Here are his words. Because the poor are despoiled, because the needy groan, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long. And these words spoken by the Lord, unlike the loud words spoken by lying lips, are trustworthy promises. The Lord will now arise. The Lord will deliver safety for the needy. These promises are as pure as silver refined seven times. On these we can depend. These promises buoyed me as I entered into those conversations around government in these troubling times. They reminded me that we need to let God's voice, God's promises of redemption and of hope, somehow remain the loudest in our souls even when other voices of destruction and of despair seem so loud. I will arise, says the Lord. That's what we're anticipating in this season of Lent. This is the source of our hope, that God used his power to enter into this sinful and broken world to redeem it. And his victory over evil, death, and despair will have the final word. As we read in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in human likeness, and found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In the person of Jesus Christ, God used his power to enter the world as a baby, to live his life in faithful obedience, to die on the cross, to rise again, to ascend, where Jesus continues to live and to reign. By his grace, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And in this newness of life, we have been given the grace to proclaim with our tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In a landscape dominated by such loud voices, how do we let these gospel truths be the loudest in our lives? And related to that, how might we hear the groans in our midst of those who don't have the platforms from which they can be heard? I believe the wisdom of James continues to apply. As Christians, we are called to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Instead of adding our loud and angry voices to the fray, might we pray to God to give us the strength to slow down, listen first, and listen well? Might it be possible for us as the body of Christ to come to be known for our listening and our love? Could we take the wisdom of Christian political scientist Amy Black to heart, who, in addressing the divide between red and blue in our country and our churches, notes that Paul's famous words about love in 1 Corinthians 13 apply even to our political engagement with one another. Could it be that the fruit of the Spirit do not go out the window when we are engaging with those with whom we disagree or those we do not understand, but that in all of our interactions we are called to be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Seasons like Lent, when we slow down to enter into more intentional self-examination and gospel reflection, can remind us that as we live out our callings in this world, even our callings to political engagement, we are called by God to do so with love and with generous listening spirits. There are many voices out there calling to us. Voices rooted in fear, voices calling us to anger, voices that seem so loud. By slowing down and listening to God's voice, we can remember his promises. He tells us that he will rise up. He will have the final word over wickedness and injustice. In the meanwhile, he calls us to remember that our lips are not our own. The power we've been given, including the power of our words, is to be used not to add to the noise offered by flattering lips and boastful tongues, but to seek God's kingdom, justice, and righteousness. I invite us this Lenten season to claim these trustworthy promises of God as a source of hope and peace, in a difficult and contentious time. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.